Uh, you'll find an outline of where we're going on the, the back of your service sheet, and I think probably up on the screen as well. Um, that might be useful to you uh, as we go. And I want to begin this morning by uh, letting you into my world just a little bit. I suspect you probably have a bit of a sense of what I'm about to say, given we've just sat through three uh, fairly long readings. As I prepared this passage, I have been struck by the challenge of teaching uh, three chapters, 83 verses. Uh, I think the reading was probably about 15 minutes long, all put together, and I've got half an hour to teach the whole lot. Uh, That's 20 seconds for every verse, roughly. Um, It is, however, a single unit. We begin with David being uh, anointed king of Judah, and we begin next week's passage with him being anointed king of the whole of Israel. And so this is a unit... And so that's how we must teach it. To hear God speak clearly from this passage, we need to teach it as one part. My aim is to teach the story, uh, but not go verse by verse, as is our typical habit here. You've heard the whole thing read, and I hope you'll have the passage open in front of you to go through uh, with me as we go. We're not going to drop into every verse, but we will hit on every one of the major verses that helps us to understand the big idea of the passage. Um, uh, There is a second question that I had to answer as I was trying to work out how to teach this passage this morning. And it was the the question of application. I love to teach application as we go through the passage, but I take it what we're going to do this morning is this. Uh, We're going to go through the passage three times, and we're going to build up the picture of what is going on in our passage. Uh, Simple themes added together to give us a complex picture of what's going on in our text. And it's only when we get to that complexity that I'll be able to apply it to us. Because it's only as we see uh, the complex interweaving of themes and ideas in a Bible text that we get to understand how they relate to uh, our situation today. What we're going to see by the end of our passage, I think, is this. Our passage this morning foreshadows God's work of establishing his king, the Lord Jesus Christ, as Messiah over his eternal kingdom. Which means our passage this morning teaches us something about our here and now experience as people in the kingdom waiting for the full realisation of the kingdom. That's where we're going. Let's begin with our first point. And it's really the main point of this passage. God is inevitably establishing his Messiah over the whole kingdom. In some ways, that's just the story arc of the whole of 2 Samuel, isn't it? We begin this theme of the kingdom back in Genesis chapter 12 where God promised to Abraham rule over the whole area that he lived in, the whole uh, territory that he could see. And from that point onwards, right through to the end of Revelation, uh, the theme of God establishing his kingdom with his king and blessing his people has governs the whole thing. It's a kingdom of uh, all of the people. And so we get to 5 verse 3 in our text, and, uh, and David rules over all of the Israelites. But it's also a kingdom of place. The whole territory. Look at 3 verse 10 in our passage. Abner is very clear on what God has promised to David, isn't he? Uh, The kingdom from uh, Dan to Beersheba, the very north to the very south of Israel. And so David not only has to unite all the people, he's got to kick out the Philistines as well, who just defeated Saul and taken over about half of the northern territory. And so this, uh, this theme will run not just in our passage, but through the next two or three passages as we look at David conquering the territory. But the point is clear. The Messiah will be king over the whole country and all its people. 
And it begins in 2 verse 4. Just look down with me, would you? As uh, David is anointed uh, king over Judah. He's made Messiah over his own tribe, the Judahites. And the key question for our passage really is this. Who is going to establish the kingdom? Who is going to establish the kingdom? And it's pretty obvious from 2 verse 1 onwards who David thinks will do it. 2 verse 1. In the course of time, David, unlike Saul before him, inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah, he asked. The Lord said, go up. They said, yeah, okay. Where should I go? Just be clear, to Hebron. And so David goes up to Hebron. He's, he's got Abiathar, the high priest, in his camp. He's been on his team for quite a while now. And David typically goes through the high priest and asks him to talk to God for him. See, David is very clear. He's not going to act without God's say-so. God must take the lead. And notice how that contrasts with the next scene. At verse 8, Meanwhile, Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, created a big obstacle in David's way by taking Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and bringing him over to Mahanaim. There he made him king. And this lack of unity between the territories leads to violence. Verse 12 and 13, Abner and Joab uh, oppose each other and they have a big fight. They're, they're, they, they get 12 of their lads to, to fight each other. They all die. That doesn't really resolve the problem because everybody's dead, so they start a, a war. And by the end of uh, chapter... Two, it's very clear who is winning the battle, isn't it? At verse 30, 19 of David's men were found missing, which presumably includes the 12 who died in the stupid hand-to-hand combat they had before the fight. But David's men had killed 360 Benjaminites who were with Abner. And this uh, battle is chosen, uh, at least in part, just as an illustration of, of a wider issue, the war. 3 verse 1, the war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. And the narrator doesn't tell us why, but the whole book is pushing us to see that God is on David's side. From the moment that David was anointed to be the king, God has been on his side, delivering him the kingdom slowly but surely. We then get to 3 verses 2 to 5, and we might think this is a bit odd. Uh, We possibly want to ask the question about the legitimacy of David having multiple wives, and and maybe you want to ask me that afterwards. Uh, Suffice to say, at least in this regard, uh, King Jesus is very different to King David. Uh, He has only one bride, the church. But notice two reasons why this is here for us. And notice the alliances that David is making. Verse 3, he has a marriage alliance with Talmai, king of Jeshur. Now, Jeshur is just to the north of where Ishbosheth had set up his kingdom at Mahanaim. And so it would be logical for this king of Jeshur to be in an alliance with Ishbosheth. He's the near neighbour. But he sees that David is rising in power and makes an alliance with him instead. Notice, too, that David has lots of sons. That's really jolly handy if you're going to have a kingdom that lasts for many generations. Just ask Henry VIII how big a deal that is. Of course, David's polygamy at this point, we'll we'll find out later in 2 Samuel, causes all sorts of violence and wars within his own family. And so it's not a commendation of polygamy, it's just the reality. And so uh, David is rising in power and, and a fight breaks out in Saul's family. So that's the next thing that happens from verse 6 onwards. Particularly notice verse 9. There's a, there's a fight between Ishbosheth and his cousin Abner. 
between the king and his general. And it's very clear that uh, up to this point that God is the one who's establishing David's kingdom. But look what happens in verse 9. Look what Abner says. May God deal with Abner, be it ever so severely, if I do not do for David what the Lord promised him on oath and transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and establish David's throne over Israel from Dan in the far north to Beersheba in the south. Clear on the promise and very clear on who is going to deliver the kingdom. Abner is going to do it. It is God who's made the promise, but it's Abner who decides that I'm the one who's going to do it. And perhaps even at this point we're thinking, Abner, it was a very foolish thing to say, may God deal with Abner, be it ever so severely. Calling down that sort of curse on yourself is just inviting trouble. Because it is God and not Abner who is in charge of delivering the kingdom. Uh, then Abner goes to David and, and says, make an agreement with me. They make an agreement and he goes to the elders. Uh, verse 18, he goes to the elders and he says, now you do it. You want David as king, so do it. In other words, I'm going to do it and you're going to do it. God's not doing it, we're doing it. David should be king, so do it. Take control of the situation and make it happen, to which the passage over and again says, no, God will do it in his time. He will put David on the throne. See, all through this section, particularly the second half of our passage, there are competing visions of what a king ought to be. Different visions of the kingdom. We see Abner establishing an alternative kingdom, but even Joab, the nephew of David, verse 24-25, they find out that David has allowed Abner to leave. Abner's walked into the camp and has walked out again. He's the general of the opposing army, and he's gone away. And the passage tells us four times has gone away in peace. He wants to make it very clear that David is at peace with Abner, and Joab is absolutely fuming. And he will not allow David uh, to have the kingdom on his terms. Do you notice that? He wants David to kill the enemy. If you kill the general, you cut off the head of the snake, don't you? Kill the general, you can just roll into Israel and take it, David. Uh, Take control of the situation. But David will not. He will not take it by force. He'll wait for God to give it to him. And he curses Joab for his uh, insurrection. And so we get to the the end of our passage, 4 verse 9. And notice what David says. If you like, summarising the central point here. As surely as the Lord lives who has delivered me out of every trouble. To his, his essential conviction is, he says, guys, I don't need your help. You've beheaded Ishbosheth, But I don't need your help. God's got it in hand. It's he who saves. It's he who delivers. It's he who will establish my kingdom. I don't need your murdering to help on the way. God's kingdom will surely come. He is establishing his kingdom, and he alone will do it. Which then leads us neatly on to our second point, which, if you like, what is David doing all this time while he's waiting? While David's waiting for God, and we find out that the patient king remains faithful to his covenants. All through the passage, David resists, as he has done since uh, meeting uh, Saul in a cave uh, years previously. Resists every temptation to take the kingdom by force. He will wait. Of course, he's the king in waiting, and and he becomes uh, the anointed king of of Judah in verse 2, verse 4. 
But he's waiting. And here I want us to notice how it is that he waits. The character of the king. I want us to pay attention to the language of covenants and how David honours the covenants that he makes. We've already seen that David is in a covenant relationship with the Lord. That's what the Lord means. It means covenant God. And David will wait for God to act to make his promises come true. And so in, at 2 verse 5, did you notice, it's back to the beginning of the passage again, 2 verse 5, David sends envoys to the people of Jabesh-Gilead. They buried Saul and his sons and he wants to honour them. And notice that the covenant language, okay, David is looking to bless those who have acted appropriately according to the covenant. The Lord bless you. Why? For showing what, what literally says this covenantal loving kindness to Saul your master. Or chesed, uh, as I've told you before. Uh, loving kindness. Covenantal relationship. So now, he offers blessings of the similar kind. He says, may the Lord now show you covenantal loving kindness. May the Lord do to you what you have done to the, to the Messiah. Uh, because God blesses those who bless him. And I too will show you the same favour, the same covenantal loving kindness. I'll do for you what you've done for Saul. Because you've done this. See, David honours their loving kindness to the previous Messiah. And he aligns himself with God who is sure to bless them according to the covenant. Do you see? In fact, it's interesting, isn't it, that Abner uses the same language, exactly the same, in 3 verse 8, if you just flick over. Abner talks about his loyalty, literally his covenantal loving kindness to the house of Saul. Of course, what we realise is that he's being covenantally loving and kind to the wrong house, isn't he? Because David, in, back in uh, 2 verse 7, says, Now then, be strong and brave, you people of Jabesh-Gilead, for Saul your master is dead. Saul, your previous Messiah is dead, and the people of Judah have anointed me as king over them. I'm the new Messiah. Show me the same loving kindness that you showed to the previous Messiah, according to the covenant. And so, actually, Abner is outing himself as somebody who is operating against the covenants. Still, Abner changes his mind, doesn't he? In 3 verse 12, he sends messengers on his behalf to say to David, whose land is it? Make an agreement, literally cut a covenant with me. Because he knows that David is committed to covenants. He knows that David is a man of faithfulness to his covenants. And so, if you're the enemy general and you know you've acted treasonously towards David as king, how are you going to uh, be able to walk into his presence? How are you going to uh, have confidence to walk into his presence? The answer? You get the king who keeps covenants to make a covenant with you. And he knows that's true for himself, and he knows that's true for the people. So verse 21, he says to David, let me go at once and assemble all Israel for my lord the king, so that they may cut a covenant with you. How do you guarantee the safety and security of people who are prone to treachery? How do you guarantee that safety? You make a covenant with the king. Uh, You you get the promise of the king for your safety. And I think that's why we get this funny incident in in verses 13 and 14. In between these two instances of uh, people begging David to make a covenant with them, we see how much David takes covenant faithfulness seriously. Look at verse uh, 13, 14 with me. I demand one thing of you, David says, do not come into my presence unless you bring Michal, daughter of Saul. 
Then he wrote, uh, David wrote to Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and demanded, Give me my wife Michal, whom I betrothed to myself for the price of a hundred Philistine foreskins. Explain that one to your kids as well. Now, of course, Michal being daughter of Saul, it's another good political alliance, isn't it? Unite the kingdoms by having children uh, of, uh, of Saul's daughter. But that's not what David says his motivation is here. Did you notice? Michal was betrothed to him. Think of Mary and Joseph, not yet married, but effectively almost married. So much so that uh, Joseph can talk of divorcing his wife. Well, Michal was in the same relationship to David. And when Michal was taken away from uh, David by Saul and given to Paltiel, uh, he, he made his daughter an adulteress. And David could be perfectly within his rights to spurn Michal and have nothing to do with her. But instead, because he's so committed to his covenant with her, he draws her back to himself and accepts her as his wife. Perhaps most strongly, we see David's commitment to the covenants by the way that he deals with those who break the covenants. I think of at 3 verse 29. Just look with me, would you? This is David calling down God's curse on the murderers of Abner. May his blood fall on the head of Job and his whole family. May Job's family never be without someone who has a running sore or leprosy or leans on a crutch or falls by the sword who lacks food. All of which are covenant curses straight out of Leviticus 16. In Leviticus 16, blessings for obedience, covenant curses for, for disobedience. Here are men who have violated God's covenant with Moses. And David says, I'm not strong enough to punish them myself, but God, send down your curses for these covenant breakers. And we see exactly the same thing when uh, the sons of Rimon, Rachab and Banah, come up to David with the head of Ishbosheth. He appeals here to Deuteronomy 21. He hangs them on poles, which is, uh, in Deuteronomy 21 terms, a way of showing that they are guilty of uh, a capital crime and are under God's curse. Uh, David upholds the covenants and upholds the terms of uh, the covenants and punishes those who break the covenants. God has made a commitment to, to establish the people in the whole kingdom. He's made a promise to establish David as the king of the kingdom. And so David waits for God. And while he waits, he upholds the covenants blesses those who are a blessing under the covenants and punishes those who are cursed under the covenants. Of course, a lot of the passage is handed over to the other characters and we need to understand how they fit into this whole covenant thing as well. And so the third point I want us to see is this. God is establishing his king. David waits patiently, upholding the covenants, despite rebellion, which brings down the covenant curses. And really, time prevents us from getting too deep into this I think, because there are a lot of deaths in this passage, a lot of uh, chaos and anarchy, largely on David's enemy side, did you notice? On David's side, there is largely peace. But we should notice a few things, shouldn't we? Notice, for, to begin with, that Abner knows right at the beginning of our passage that David is supposed to be the anointed king. He says so in 3 verse 10. And so when he sets up his own cousin as a rival king, he's doing so in rebellion against the true king. He's doing it because he knows that 
if he sets up his cousin as king, then he gets to be the general. He gets to retain his own position of power. And we, and we know from 3 verse 6 that he likes to manipulate the situation to make himself more powerful. And then we see uh, the war that comes. If you uh, start a rebellion, you start a civil war, then there's going to be death. And so you get the 24 men in hand-to-hand combat, completely pointless as far as I can tell. And then uh, because they're dead, they have a war. And we notice the battle. We're told about the battle primarily, I think, because of Asahel's death. Joab's brother is killed. Did you notice on the butt end of, of Abner's spear? That's important. It looks like Abner's just tried to, to wind him. Just use the, use the blunt end to just knock him out so you can run away. But he's done it with such force and Asahel's run so fast that he put the spear right through him. Pretty grim. Uh, it's not for the, for the faint of heart, this passage. And did you notice, uh, as it was read, that, that actually the battle would go on and on and more people would die? We know that hundreds of people died. It could be thousands, but, but Abner gets himself into a position of, of uh, strategic importance up on top of the hill. He says, look, guys, we're brothers, aren't we? At 2 verse 26. Must the sword devour forever? Don't you realise that this will end in bitterness? How long before you order your men to stop pursuing their fellow Israelites, literally your brothers? He's saying, this is what happens. This rebellion has has split houses. It's split the family. We're fighting amongst ourselves. And isn't that what the gospel does? In 3 verse 6 we hear that that Abner is strengthening his position against his cousin Ishbosheth. And so they fall out. And Abner suddenly realises for the first time that blood ties and, and trying to gain power for himself isn't a sufficient reason for rejecting the Messiah. You can't trust the blood ties of rebels. And so he changes teams. Along the way, he breaks Paltiel's heart by taking his wife back to David. And meanwhile, David's own nephew is doing exactly the same thing. Job's reaction to David is exactly the same as Abner's reaction to Ishbosheth. Did you notice that? He calls David a fool, effectively. He says, David, what are you doing? Here your enemies walk right into your, into your front room and you could just take him out and the whole thing's over. But we know why he really is he's interested, don't we? Because uh, Abner has killed his brother Asahel and so he wants vengeance. And Joab has no interest in upholding the king's plans. He goes after uh, Abner and has him killed. And, and, and I want us to see just how shocking this is. What an absolutely appalling thing this is. Asahel died in battle. That's the first thing to notice. Uh, Throughout the passage, he's described as having died and been killed because that's what happens in a battle. He wasn't, notice, murdered, which is what happens to Abner and what happens to Ishbosheth. Different words, different points. Moreover, I've already noted that Abner used the butt end of his spear to try and wind his his opponent, not to kill him. Now, this is important because in Jewish law, in in the Old Testament, it says that if somebody is murdered... You have a right to go, if a member of your family is murdered, you have the right to go after them and exact revenge. Blood for blood, eye for eye, that whole lex talionis thing. But that hardly applies here, does it? Asahel died in battle. He wasn't murdered, he wasn't premeditated. And yet, uh, Joab treats him as a murderer. More than that, worse than that, I think, is this. The Old Testament allowed for what were called cities of refuge. If you had accidentally killed somebody and you knew that the the, the relatives were after you, you would flee to a city of refuge. 
you run to the city and you are protected by law until your case is heard, until you can give evidence that you didn't kill somebody on purpose. And one such city is Hebron. Hebron should be the most safe place for anybody. And yet Joab lures Abner to the city of refuge in order to murder him. It's an absolutely scandalous, shocking rejection of God's covenant, the terms of the Mosaic covenant, in order to exact revenge. And so it's no surprise, is it, that David says Joab is guilty of an innocent man's blood. That's, in fact, the song that he sings in verses 33-34 point that way, don't they? Should he have died like the lawless die? Because he wasn't a lawless man. Should he have fallen before the wicked? Joab, you're a wicked man. Now, David's not in a position to punish Joab. Joab, after all, has the army on his side. So David can't just execute him. There'd be a riot. Although he does later uh, in the book. Uh, Joab does get executed for his treason. But even now, God, uh, Jesus, David calls down God's covenant curses onto this covenant lawbreaker. And exactly the same thing happens with the sons of Rimon when they kill Ishbosheth. It's murder again, through the stomach again. It's, we're meant to see the parallels between these two instances. And here, there's nothing stopping David dishing out justice. And so uh, he hangs these men on the tree. He has them killed and hung on the, the pole to say, look, these guys are covenant breakers and they're suffering the covenant curses. My hands are clean. God is establishing his king. It is inevitable the true king upholds God's covenant, fights back the rebels, establishes God's law in his uh, kingdom as he waits patiently for the day when God will hand the keys to the kingdom over to him. But there are those who are opposed to, to God's plan and purpose, aren't there? There are those from the outside who want to set up their own kingdom for their own advantage, like Abner. There are those who oppose the king from the inside, like Joab, who will have uh, the king on their side, but as soon as the king does something they don't want, well, they'll reject him and walk away. And then there are those who will ingratiate themselves with the king, uh, doing the right thing in absolutely the wrong way, like the sons of Rimon, who uh, want to hand the kingdom to David by murder. And David will have nothing to do with any of those. And all three face God's ultimate covenant curse, death, because of their behaviour. You see, this passage illustrates for us over and over again the only place to find life is in the kingdom. It's to be in a good covenant standing with the king. The king who will defend the covenant and protect his people as he waits for God to fulfil his purposes. Well, that's the passage. What about implications for us? God has been promising since Abraham onwards uh, to give the kingdom to Israel. And God is absolutely committed to his plan, and he remains completely committed to his plan today. Uh, here he was putting David on the throne, and of course he did, and David ruled as the greatest king that Israel ever had, until Jesus came. As we'll see in next week's passage, as Andy teaches us, uh, David is promised a great descendant who will be the great king, the true Messiah, the one who will reign forever and ever on the eternal throne of the eternal kingdom. We know that eternal king is Jesus. And we know that eternal kingdom is still to come. God is still establishing that kingdom right now. 
Even as I'm speaking to you, you may be being drawn into the kingdom, attracted to Jesus and his covenants. It is inevitable. Everyone that God intends to call will come and bow to Jesus. And just like Ishbosheth, Abner, Jab, and the others who opposed David, we'd be foolish to stand against Jesus because he is a mighty king. When Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, he could have grasped the kingdom for himself, but he said, my kingdom is not of this world. I'm waiting for God to give me the kingdom. But that doesn't mean we should forget that Jesus is extremely powerful. Do you remember the story? Uh, Jesus in the garden being arrested. Peter grabs a sword and tries to fight them all off. You know, 500 soldiers and Peter's got a sword. And thinks, I'll defend you, Jesus. And Jesus says, do you think that I cannot call on my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. If Jesus had wanted to fight there and then, he could have called a million angels, great big shining people with massive swords to fight for him. He could have conquered the world if he wanted to do it. But that was not the kingdom that he was after. And he was waiting for God to hand the kingdom to him. That was then, but Jesus is coming back. We saw in Revelation last year, a hundred million strong his army. Uh, Jesus is coming back and he will crush those who are opposed to him. There will be no escape for those who reject the king, who stand outside of his covenant. And so let me urge you, if you haven't yet done so, to repent. Turn to the king and come back to him if you've been away for a while. Turn to our great and mighty king. He will protect you. He will welcome you into the kingdom. But he will crush those who are outside of his covenant. And he may come back even today. Don't delay. Of course, uh, the Bible calls us to count the cost of following Jesus. So we consider Abner, don't we? He preferred to set up a rival kingdom where he could have power. And it can cost us a lot, can't it, to follow Jesus? Because we can go from being people of power and position in the world to being foot soldiers for Jesus. In the end, Abner, I think, makes the right decision, doesn't he, to change sides. How easy it is for us to prefer uh, the godlessness of our society because it means we can do whatever we want and we can chase our idols and make them God for us for a while. But Jesus alone is truly God. Or consider Joab. He's willing to have David as king so long as David takes his advice and not the other way round. But as soon as David says, no, we're going this way, and Joab wants to go this way, who's really in charge? Joab won't have David as king. Well, we have Jesus as king. It's so easy for us, isn't it, to turn our back on Jesus, at least in the area of our sexuality. So long as Jesus doesn't ask me to do this, that's fine. Easy to push him to one side when he demands control of our finances. Ask us to make sacrificial choices about our children and where we educate them and how we educate them and so on. And we can be so outwardly committed to Jesus' ways but inwardly turn away from him the moment he asks us to do something that we don't want him to do. Or consider the sons of Rimon wanting to bring the kingdom of God by ungodly means. I think of Paul's opponents in Corinth. We'll come to 2 Corinthians in next term. I think of Paul's opponents there. They preferred fine-sounding arguments. They liked to to persuade people to become Christians by all sorts of means. Anything other than just laying the truth about Jesus in front of people and saying, believe in him. 
bringing the, the kingdom by ungodly means. But to have Jesus as king, to belong to his kingdom, means that we have to reject the way of Abner and, and Joab and the sons of Rimon and submit willingly to his rule as king. To make a decision to follow him, even when he asks us to do things that we don't want to do. That's what it means to have a king. God has put Jesus on the throne. He's inevitably establishing his kingdom. And the choice is before us whether we will come in or whether we'll do the the mad thing and resist him. But if we come in, Jesus demands absolute loyalty. And if we're honest with ourselves, whether we're, we're new to Christian things or have been Christians for a long time, the truth is that we all fail, don't we? We, we show signs of Abner and signs of Joab in our own hearts. If we're honest with ourselves, on the day Jesus returns, we know that we deserve the covenant curses. We deserve the fate of Joab and the, and the fate of the sons of Rimon. We deserve the covenant curses for our sin. How then can we have any hope of being welcomed into God's kingdom? And this, I think, is where our passage is truly wonderful. Just uh, turn to the last verse of our passage, if you will, uh, 4 verse 12. This might not sound wonderful to start with, but bear me out. And David gave this order to his men, and they killed them, the sons of Rimon, and cut off their hands and feet and hung their bodies uh, by the pool of Hebron. As I said, this is uh, an illustration, a fulfilment of uh, the covenant curses in Deuteronomy 21. Let me read that to you. This is what's behind David's action here. If someone is guilty of a capital offence, and let me be clear, we all are, because we've all rebelled against our king, and is put to death, and their body is exposed on a pole, as the sons of Rimon were, you must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it the same day, because anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. And then you ask the question, why was it that Joseph of Arimathea buried Jesus on the day that he died? This verse. Jesus was exposed on a pole. And Paul makes this exact point in Galatians chapter 3. We are unable to keep the whole law. We fail the covenant. We break the covenant. We deserve the covenant curses. We cannot obey God as we should. And and so we fail our king. But listen to what the king has done. Jesus has come as king. And he could, could have crushed us the first time. But he said this is what he did. He has not come to destroy. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written in Deuteronomy 21 and illustrated in our passage, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. See the point? Jesus should have, could have come to destroy all those who were against him. But instead, instead of cursing us, he loved us. He should have cursed us for our lack of obedience. He said he obeyed and went to the cross. He took upon himself our curse, our death, the death that we deserve for our rebellion against our king. And all the wrath, all the the anger of God at our rebellion has been put on him, crushed him in our place. David is just in killing the sons of Rimon for their rebellion. But Jesus is a king who crushes his enemies by dying in their place for them. What a saviour. 
And because Jesus has died for our rebellion yesterday and today and tomorrow, it means that there's nothing to prevent us from coming into his kingdom. Yes, failing. Yes, stumbling. But if we come with repentance, Jesus accepts us, takes us to his heart, takes us into his protection, the protection of his covenant. He will defend his people. And on the last day, he will bring us uh, into his glorious kingdom where he will uh, purge us of all our wrongdoing and make us perfect like he is perfect. Our king has a compassionate heart, the heart of David. Our king is full of the loving kindness and faithfulness of the covenant. He has not failed us. He will not fail us. We can turn to him and cling to him in our failings. And he will cleanse us and restore us and forgive us and welcome us home. And that is a glorious thing. Let me encourage you to turn again to him today for his mercy and forgiveness. Let me pray. Our loving and merciful Lord Jesus, how we are awed again by your great sacrifice that you, the King of the universe, who deserved all honour and glory and was treated so shamefully by people, took all that shame, all that guilt on the cross that you could forgive billions of people down through the ages and welcome them into your eternal kingdom and we uh, delight on that future day that we get to come to you we pray that you would forgive us again that you would restore us to your fellowship that you would take uh, all of our wrongdoing and I pray for those who uh, have never made that decision here this morning that you would uh, call them call them into your kingdom make them part of your people for the sake of your name Amen